This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. What Bishop has done is provide us with a necessary mirror so we can get about the business of becoming what we claim we want. A single nation marked not by rancor, but by civility. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Hey folks, welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, so glad to be with you again. Thank you for joining us for The Big Sort, why the clustering of like-minded America is tearing us apart with special guest Bill Bishop. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. We thought it'd be good to revisit this talk we had with Bill Bishop, a journalist with the distinction of being a Pulitzer Prize finalist, uh, because it reflects a phenomenon that seems to be happening more and more. So we find it encouraging that a number of the most perceptive sociologists, psychologists, political scientists, and other brilliant folks are naming it. Whether it's the big sort with Bill Bishop, what our grand poobah of this area of inquiry, Robert Putnam, uh, began articulating with bowling alone, or what we'll be sharing soon, our conversation with Jonathan Haidt, exploring his brilliant framework of our contemporary version of a pre-Babel world and a post-Babel world, likening the ways in which the fractured country we now inhabit, as he put it in the article, is similar to what the people of Babel experienced in the famous Bible story. So as long as this fractionalization persists, as long as we continue to create bespoke realities, it's important to continue to try to understand and especially try to figure out what to do about it, which is what you'll be hearing on this engaging and in fact, timely conversation that the incomparable gem of a founder and CEO of Village Square, Liz Joyner introduces and Bill Bishop leads. So now let's turn it over to Liz for this discussion of the big sort. Bill Bishop, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, blogged on Texas politics for the Austin American Statesman where his post grew into a series of articles written in collaboration with University of Texas sociologist Robert Cushing called The Great Divide. The series received a great deal of national attention was the genesis for the book, The Big Sort. Bishop was a columnist at the Lexington Herald Leader, worked as a reporter at the Mountain Eagle in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and taught at Duke University. He and his wife owned and operated the Bastrop County Times. They now co-edit The Daily Yonder, a web-based publication covering rural America online at dailyyonder.com. Bill. I'm going to do a, a short thing because we have a great panel and some really knowledgeable people here. And um, so I want to get to them quickly. So I'm going to give you an, a, a short 
discussion of what's in the book, The Big Sort, and, and what it really is, is, is about the nation that we've become and what you all are worried about. And you're familiar with all these pictures of American politics. Um, and the thing that has struck me when doing The Big Sort is how we're all so cocksure of what we think politically. And the other thing is that, is that we rarely uh, uh, test what we believe by being around people who think anything differently from us. This is my favorite. My, my wife, Julie, found this slide. I think, it's from, I think it's from San Francisco. But anyway, it could be from Austin. I, uh, uh, as a result, the middle of our politics has been dropping, out, uh, dropping away for the past 30 years. And so here you can see the... Uh, this shows the, the number of uh, members of the House or Senate who cross over and vote for the different side as, uh, as bills come up. And you can see it's been dropping for the past 30 years, both in the House and the Senate. We like to blame gerrymandering for a lot of things, but the same process has been going on in the, in the Senate, and there's been no gerrymandering, of course, in the Senate. And the other thing that's been going on for the past 30 years is that trust in government has declined. Uh, at the same time. And in 19, uh, trust peaked in the United States in 1965. And, um, and if you think about 1965, it was this amazing time when the Voting Rights Act was passed and the National Endowments for Arts and Humanities were created, the Appalachian Regional Commission was created, uh, Medicare was passed, and it was a time when eight out of 10 Americans thought that the uh, government officials would do the right thing most of the time. And by 1976, actually trust began declining in late 1965. By 1966, the Great Society was over. And by 1976, only three in 10 Americans believed that um, the government could do the, uh, was doing the right thing for uh, Americans most of the time. So most of the time, we see all this disagreement, and we blame politicians. We like to blame other people. We blame the media. And what I want to do tonight is say that uh, another reason is us. Because over the last 30 years, Americans have been segregating, not by race or religion. We're still racially segregated. But um, racial segregation over the last 30 years at the county level has remained about the same. What the big sort is about is the separation of Americans in the neighborhoods and clubs and churches and news groups and, and every organization where we are surrounded by those who generally live and think and every four years vote the same way that we do. So it's clear to see the voting, uh, to see the big sort in voting statistics. You can go to most counties. <clears throat> More than two-thirds of U.S. counties over the last 30 years have gotten either increasingly Republican or increasingly Democratic. So blue line, of course, is Democrat. This is L.A. County. It's going one way, the red vote is going another way. Or you can be in Tom Green County, which is out in West Texas, where I've got relatives. And it goes the other direction. The, the, the decline there in Republican vote was the year that Ross Perot ran. He was from West Texas, so, so that changed that. Uh, but when you look at the statistics for most US counties, they're, they're, all, they're going one way or another. Um, and that's our nation, and politicians didn't do this to us. We weren't gerrymandered. Uh, this is the way we've chosen to live. So it, makes, it made sense to us 
and I did this work with Bob Cushing, a statistician and a sociologist, that it's perfectly natural for birds of a feather to flock together and people want to be around others who are like themselves because it's comfortable. But what we didn't understand is why beginning in the 1970s was, did this begin to increase? Why did we begin clustering? And, and, and as we looked at the vote, we could see this movement. So in 1976, a very close race between Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, uh, we looked at the, count, at the counties where either Ford or um, Carter won by more than 20 percentage points, 60-40 county. Black counties are 60-40 for um, Carter, Democratic, and the gray counties are, are, are landslide counties for Gerald Ford. And, and in 1976, about a quarter of the U.S. voting population lived in, a, in one of these landslide counties, in a, in a county where a nationally 50-50 race locally wasn't close at all. And over the next 20, 30 years, you had this gradual increase. So in 2004, uh, again, black counties, uh, it, it was an, another 50-50 race between uh, John Kerry and, and George Bush. And uh, the black counties are Kerry County, 60-40, and the gray counties are uh, Bush, 60-40 counties. And you had about half the people living in one of these landslide counties in a national race that was about 50-50. And everybody thought, okay, 2008, you know, this is the election of the, of the, uh, uh, the post-partisan politicians. And both John McCain and Barack Obama pictured themselves as, you know, purple candidates. And, but about the same thing happened in 2008. In fact, every measure uh, that we looked at of, uh, of local partisanship increased between 04 and 08 in that race. And still you had about half the people in, a, again, a very close election living in a county that was um, a landslide county. So um, most important, the difference within states also uh, increased. So in Florida or in Texas, there's increasing divergence from place to place. And that's why I think a lot of um, uh, state legislators have, legislatures have trouble because they're, you have representatives coming from places that are increasingly different. Anyway, there's this immediate objection to, to what we said. You know, they said, eh, you know, people don't look up voting stats, but when they decide to move someplace, they move for all kinds of reasons. They don't move for, for uh, uh, reasons of politics. And it was a good point, and uh, I began to think about it because my, my wife and I had just recently moved from Kentucky to Austin, Texas, and we'd driven around Austin, and, and my wife, Julie, is the daughter of a good New Deal liberal law, uh, lawyer, and she's a good Democrat, and she put little smiley faces on neighborhoods where we felt comfortable, and we bought a house underneath one of those little smiley faces, and in 2000, in our precinct, George Bush came in third behind both... Uh, uh, Al Gore and Ralph Nader. It was, you know, that democratic of a... So we began to wonder if maybe if places did have a look that would tell you whether it was Republican or, or Democratic. And, and um, re remember, in the big sort, we don't really cluster around people of the same religion, uh, necessarily the same. It's not how we look, it's, how, it's, it's what, what we think and, uh, and how we live. 
And I think most of us have a kind of cultural literacy that tells us if we're in, our, in the right tribe. And I, I remember I, I was, um, heard three people call in in one hour in a talk show radio uh, program I did in Minneapolis. And all three people said, you know, I knew I was in the wrong neighborhood when I moved here because all my neighbors use lawn chemicals on their lawn. And I don't, be you know, I don't believe in that. And, and I, kn I knew I had to get out. So it, yes, the fact is, I think you can tell by looking. And so I, mean, I just put together some slides of places. And you tell me if there's any, if you, anybody has the slightest doubt about the politics of these places. This is, this is Fayette County, Texas, where I think we might move. We really, but it's about 75 or 80% Republican, which is good uh, German, Czech, Catholic county. And uh, of course, then other neighborhoods have a different look. <laughs> or there's, um, this is Lewiston, Idaho, on the main street. JBS.org, which I think everyone, I always ask, I wonder if people know, but I think they, almost everyone does, John Birch Society. And um, Republican neighborhoods have one look. This is outside uh, Minneapolis in Scott County, and which is about 60% Republican. And Democratic neighborhoods have another look. <laughs> Which is right, this is right around the corner from my house. This is a different aesthetic that, so, um, I mean, religion looks like, you know, in Republican neighborhoods looks one way. And uh, in Democratic neighborhoods, you have, I don't know whether you can actually see this, but this is up on South Congress in Austin where you know, some people swear on a stack of Bibles, but here a stack of Bibles becomes some sort of ironic window display that is supposed to attract the, the sort of tattooed set to come in and buy stuff. And, and this is, a, this is um, in Harlan County, Kentucky, uh, Far Eastern Kentucky. When this sign went up, it was done by Harrison Mays, and this is the folk art section of the talk. Harrison Mays was an uh, evangelist and... and uh, kind of street artist. His first sign, he wrote on the side of a pig, sin not. It was a small, you know, it wasn't a hog, it was just a pig, so he could only get sin not, and then released it onto the, and probably anybody who drove across the south over the last 30 years would see some of these signs, uh, get right with God signs. He would, he had them, uh, put them up on the side of the roads, and in fact he had them stockpiled for all the planets, and all the, the moon, and <laughs> So, but this was put up at a time when class politics was predominated and, and uh, in Harlan County, it became a UMW County, United Mine Workers, and went Democratic because of Roosevelt. Now it's Republican because people are preparing to meet God and it has uh, switched as our politics has switched from class to, uh, uh, to, to more social issues. Um, and this is uh, the uh, this is the the elementary school. This is literally this is two blocks from where Molly Ivins, the liberal columnist, lived. And so religion has it's kind of a has a slippery meaning there. And so um, the um, 
And another way of telling whether you live in a um, democratic county or not is, and I, this is actually my favorite picture, is, is I, we went up and took pictures of our polling place and um, <clears throat> because we were trying to collect, there was, someone was trying to collect photos of every polling place in the United States. Three quick points on, on what this means. One is the most important thing about politics these days isn't demographics, it's not issues, it's lifestyle. Uh, lifestyle is much more important to how politics is, is forms and changes than, uh, than anything else. The second, the price we pay for living in these in a more homogenous uh, churches and neighborhoods and civic groups is a decrease in tolerance and an increase in extremism. And the third thing is that the country has replaced the trust in a nation with isolated and insulated communities as a result, it would be easier for a place like Tallahassee or Austin with a, with a more like-minded group to go ahead and do what they want to do, while it would be harder for states and the nation to make policy, which I think is why we have this. Um, uh, there are articles now about how you know, the return of the great authoritarian powers. We sort of like the idea that, that China can just say, by God, we're going to you know, have wind power, or we're going to do this, or we're going to and just make things happen because it's become so hard uh, to make anything happen in our country. Uh, but when we started this uh, with Bob Cushing, we weren't looking for political division. We were trying to figure out why some places were getting rich and others were uh, falling behind. And what we discovered is this sorting process. Uh, and one example, uh, the best example is education. In 1970, the, uh, in the United States, especially in metro areas, they were fairly, people with BA degrees were fairly evenly distributed. Uh, but beginning in the 1970s on through to, 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 to until today, people with BA degrees began to cluster in some places and not in others. So the maps look something like this. This is 1990, well into the process. The red counties are those well below average in terms of BA per capita, and the blue counties are above, above average. And you can see that the light blue and that sort of pinkish area, the light pink, you know, that's what the way most of the country is, sort of in the middle. But over just this short period of time to 2000, you had an increase in dark blue, an increase in dark red, and by 2009, an, uh, an ever-increasing, so it, just as, you know, in, in the life of a country, 20 years is nothing. And you can see this incredible increase in inequ educational inequality. And you can see Tallahassee's blue, Austin, the counties around Austin are blue, Boulder, the, the places that were having, uh, that were creating more technology, more patents per person. These are the places with increasing income. These were the places that, that also Al Gore won in 2000. Al Gore won, Al Gore won the 20 cities that were producing the most technology by more than 3.5 million votes in 2000 while losing the election here in Florida. So, um, <laughs> the, well, I mean, well, I guess he could have lost it also in, uh, there are a couple of states he lost. He, could have, he actually lost it in West Virginia also. So, um, so and also what we found is just as educated people begin to cluster, the economic returns to education increase. It became even more important to your region to have people with BA degrees and 
and uh, PhDs. So this had all kinds of regional economic uh, consequences. But what we found as we looked was that it also had these political consequences. So as we, I could, there are other indicators, but as we looked, we could see that every time we looked at county figures, places were getting different. They were getting different in terms of how long people lived, in their education, uh, in health and uh, characteristics, and in the vote. Um, in Republican counties, uh, more people were going to Bible groups and study groups, and, and in, in uh, Democratic counties, people were more likely than uh, uh, to think that homosexuality was okay. Um, and one of the ways, and so one of the, one of the things that, uh, that's important to know is that really the political differences we have today are lifestyle differences. And one of the best examples of this is spanking. Uh, this is Max Ernst with uh, Mary spanking the Christ child. And uh, it begins, it, it, it's the uh, uh, introduction to Mark Hetherington's uh, study of spanking. Mark Hetherington, political scientist in, in Vanderbilt, uh, looked at spanking rates. There's, I mean, do, do you believe in physical punishment for your child? There's polling on that. And when he began to look at the state-by-state -state figures and compared it to the vote in 2004, you can see that as the, the uh, spanking rates went up, so did the Republican vote. Um, so lifestyle began to tell more about how a place was going to vote than anything else. And there, there are all kinds of examples uh, like this. One of the other good ones that increased from 2004 to 2008 is um, uh, family formation. The, the counties where people are more likely to have lived together before marrying uh, have the highest rate of, of democratic vote. So you have a the more you're, you, the higher the shacking rate is in your <laughs> county, the, the higher you, uh, your Democratic vote. And all those trends are increasing. So, but there's a price to be paid for living around others who are like yourself. And the price is increasing extremism and decreasing tolerance. And there, as people congregate among those who are like-minded, they tend to become more extreme in the way that they are like-minded. So it's a well-known, well-documented social psychology uh, phenomenon. Uh, one of the earliest experiments had French students. French students who disliked the United States were put into a room. They were asked to talk about the United States for a short period of time. When they came out of the room, they disliked the United States more than when they went in. And, and there are all sorts of examples. In one experiment, uh, Cass Sunstein and a business professor at the University of Texas took liberals from Boulder, conservatives from Colorado Springs, put them in rooms, and had them talk about gay marriage, global warming, abortion. And when they emerged, liberals were more liberal, and the folks from Colorado Springs had become more conservative, and the differences within the groups had begun to, to, uh, uh, to grow smaller. So two hours of discussion among like-minded people made the groups both more extreme and more homogenous and also less tolerant. Now, there are all kinds of reasons why this happens. One of them is 
if you're in a, a like-minded group, you hear the same arguments over and over again. And, uh, and you also are, more, there's also this subtle process in like-minded groups where, where in order to be a good member of the group, you have to be slightly ahead of the group. And um, so, you know, in my neighborhood, everyone was, you know, we were all against Bush. Um, but it wasn't good enough just to say, I'm against Bush. You had to, you know, put the impeach uh, sign in your front yard. And that's like not only a political statement about you, but it's a marker to the rest of the group saying that, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm a member. And uh, this isn't anything new. I think St. Paul in the Bible talked about how he profited among the Jews um, for being the most extreme in his persecution of Christians. And that's, <clears throat> that is uh, where we are. So, um, in one way, w what's happened over the last generation is we've had this incredible human experiment. Places are zooming off in different directions as, as people congregate and, and, and change things locally. So in Odessa, Texas, you know, they've got a Bible course in, uh, as an elective in the high school. In Austin, we have every kind of alternative energy thing you can imagine. Uh, but what the nation has lost is any ability to act collectively. Now, anthropists, a group of British anthropologists in the 1950s began to study how societies were, you know, how did societies that had differences, how did they get along? How did they figure out or set themselves up so they wouldn't go to war? And uh, Max Gluckman, a, a British anthropologist, found uh, tribal traditions uh, in, in one African tribe where it became, it was against the law for uh, uh, people to marry within their own tribe. They had to, you had to go to another tribe to find your wife or your husband. And uh, because you didn't go to war against your in-laws, uh, <clears throat> at least outside the dinner table, right? So <laughs> among, um, so the same became among a lot of these tribes, or in, in this, when this, well, in this tribe that Gluckman studied, uh, the saying was, they are our enemies, we marry them. And we've stopped marrying our enemies in, in this country, uh, and politically this means that the middle has dropped out of our politics, but uh, it has brought us here. It is my pleasure now to introduce Steve Seibert, who will be facilitating our discussion tonight. Steve is the Vice President of Strategic Visioning for the Collins Center for Public Policy, described by the St. Petersburg Times as a consensus builder with an eye to the future and is one of Florida's significant thinkers. He served as a Secretary of the Department of Community Affairs under Jeb Bush and as Pinellas County Commissioner. Steve. I think that uh, Bill's book is profound and it is disturbing. Uh, and it is probably, and I hope to tease out both of those concepts over the course of tonight. One of the reviewers of the book suggested maybe a different perspective that I'd like to get our minds around tonight. And I think Bill would agree with this. He said, 
Bill Bishop shows us that the red state, blue state divide is real. And it is not just the politicians who are responsible for it. One cannot fix a problem unless it, its root causes are clearly identified. What Bishop has done is provide us with a necessary mirror so we can get about the business of becoming what we claim we want, a single nation marked not by rancor, but by civility. And so I would suggest as our conversation evolves over the course of the night, he gives us a foundation to understand where we are. The question is, what can we become? These are all trick questions. <laughs> Many of us believe, this is so difficult to sit down and do this. Many of us believe that the great middle of American politics is what keeps the pendulum from going crazy. And we have relied on it again and again during American history. Your book argues the opposite. It says that the middle has diminished and may even be close to gone. Is that true? Is that really what you're saying? There are a number of studies that show that, that uh, from 1976 on, people become more allegiant to party. And, the, and the peop there are more people that say they're, they're independent, but when you ask them uh, further questions, what you find is they normally vote one way or another, and they vote just as allegiantly as people who are, uh, who say that they're Republican or Democratic. And, and the, the genius of the Bush campaign in 2004 was that they realized this. They looked at the uh, difference in between the approval ratings between uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans, and they found that there was no middle. And, I, and, uh, and so they realized in 2004 that they they, did, they weren't going to run a campaign of convincing anybody of anything. Uh, they needed to run a campaign of getting their people out. And, uh, and actually, I, I just saw the Gallup release the poll last week showing that that difference between Republican and Democratic approval rating of the president is the highest that's in their history. So those trends have only increased from 2004 when uh, the very smart people in the Bush campaign figured out that the middle had disappeared. But, but political scientists have been writing papers for the last 15 years saying there's no middle. The, the number of people uh, voting uh, split tickets is declining. The number of straight ticket uh, votes is increasing. So. And um, there was an interesting part of the book. There were many interesting parts of the book. But one talked about emerging religions. We spend, he spends a lot of time talking about about religion, and, and, and you, you follow a couple of folks as they move into a less uh, black and white world in religion. Is it arguable that the same thing could happen in politics in that perhaps you don't, 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, you don't have two or three major parties, you have seven or 10 or, or 12 parties more on the European model? Do you see that as a possibility? We might have some political scientists here who will tell you that I, I guess that the, that the way the U.S. system is structured, it's just in, impos almost impossible to have a third party. But um, the interesting, the chapter I, on the book about religion to me was the most interesting because you could see the collapse of the mainstream um, 
denominations beginning in 1965 when they all began losing membership and the rise of uh, independent churches that were built around models of certain types of lifestyle preferences. And um, it was based on a, a, a missionary from India who said churches should be, should be built on the homogenous unit principle of uh, church membership. And churches were built uh, the way stuff is marketed and they were built for lifestyle purposes and and uh, that sort of homogeneity has had a backlash among younger people and there's a there's our there's a church movement called the emerging church movement and young people are leaving the mega church and and they're founding churches where they they would tell me yeah we have this we think we think things are gray we don't see the yes you know the right or the wrong or the Thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do that. And, and we want to find, have a religious life that is more mixed up. And uh, so my question, which I don't know the answer to, is is there a, a generational shift uh, away from boomer, left, right, yes, no, for and against kind of politics to a, a, another generation that uh, embraces what uh, a young a student said last night was sort of gray thinking. And let me just ask one more uh, general question. You describe, and you described it briefly in your slides, but I thought it was very powerful. You just described 1965 as the great unraveling. And a lot had happened, and your, your chart showed great public acceptance of government, and a lot of very important legislation passed that year, but it, that it almost almost immediately unraveled. Can you tease that out a little bit and explain that? I don't know if I can explain it, but a lot of things happened around 1965 that um, took old institutions and old ways of life and then they began to disappear. So Robert Putnam wrote his book, Bowling Alone, uh, you know, about the decline of American civic organization, Elks and Rebecca's and the Masons and the and his emblematic group is the bowling league. People used to belong to bowling leagues and then uh, beginning, it so happens in 1965, membership in bowling leagues began to decline. Membership in bowling leagues began to decline the same year that membership in the Presbyterian and Methodist and Lutheran Episcopal Church began to decline. Uh, that's also the year that uh, where uh, newspaper readership uh, penetration peaked. And so what happened is that at one, at one time in the mid-1960s, all the old institutions that we trusted and that we belonged to and that shaped our life uh, began to lose favor among Americans. And the question, and in fact, that was the year that divorce rates began to go up, crime rates began to go up, and, and sort of the glue came out from society. And in fact, people began to lose favor, lose their interest in party politics in 1965. People were very allegiant to parties before that time and afterwards they began, uh, in, beginning in the third quarter of 1965, they began to withdraw from, the, from their parties and, and uh, parties came roaring back, um, but every other institution, the churches, the, the clubs, all, and so now th th what we see is a country that's more atomized and more individualistic 
and has lost those institutions that used to be the structure of our government and, and how we manage things. Well, on that uplifting note, um, let's, let's before, we ask, before we ask Lorraine and Sally, let's ask if there are any questions on the general thought of Bill's book for Bill. Yes, sir. You showed a lot of graphs. I was wondering if you had a graph on the media and voting, from Walter Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley to the media that we have today. It'd be interesting to see what that graph looks yeah, like. Yeah, it would look the same, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would look the same. We, I mean, every common experience that Americans had has begun to disappear. When I grew up, everyone in Kentucky read the Louisville Courier-Journal newspaper. You can get it in all 120 counties in the state, and now there's nothing that holds the state together. Well, basketball. Well, if, depending on whether you're a Louisville or UK ah, fan. Good point. <laughs> that would that would that, be... that is it. That is it, right? Sports. That is it. Yes, sir. The, I noticed in your dates, 1966, 67, and such as that, this was the time when Vietnam was going on. I know I was there, so. But there was an awful lot of stuff going on in the country with respect to the young people, and uh, you know, anti-establishment stuff, uh, anti-war stuff, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure everybody here knows all that. But have you figured out a connection between the anti-establishment mindset of students and this decline in uh, institutional participation? I think I, I haven't figured this out, but a guy at University of Michigan, Ron Engelhardt, has a proposition for you. He says, wrote in the 1970s, wrote a book called Culture Shift, and he said that as people get richer, and not a lot, you know, not rich, rich, but when their needs are taken care of, when they don't have to worry about survival, then their what they want out of life begins to change, and. Uh, uh, class diminishes as a, a, a thing that divides people in politics and uh, issues of individual rights, gay rights, women's rights, um, uh, you know, bl black right, American Indian rights become more important. Uh, the ecology becomes, uh, uh, ecology movements arise. Uh, people become less traditionally religious but more individually spiritual. So you have yoga classes and this kind of meditation and the rise of the independent churches and people's uh, politics, and this is, gets to your question, changes. It becomes, you become less a member of a group that supports a party and you begin to challenge authority more. And, and he said this, and trust in government declines as people's relationship to people in power becomes more, more one of challenging rather than one of support. And he would say that this happens, and he's got worldwide polling from the, the 70s on that shows that this happens in every industrialized country. So, and the trust, it, when people's um, uh, survival is challenged, like after 9-11, after 9-11, churches were filled. Trust in government increased. And, uh, and then a couple of weeks later, of course, we were back in our... One, one more before we bring up our speakers. Gil? I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear your, um, if there is a, a connection between the two. The time you're speaking of is also the time when we as Americans started to have a lot more choices that were made aware to us. In other words, if we were in small town America or even mid-sized markets, we still had limited places we could shop, limited places we could get our news. 
And now, and as we had the advent of mass media, particularly 24-hour news channels, we were exposed to that which we wanted to be exposed to and have that choice. Does that correlate with what you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah. I mean, given a choice, people will choose the stuff that most closely fits there. It was also the time when sort of differential production became a part of the industrial world. So there, there no, at that time, there was, cars were mass produced. And now, I, don't, I think, you know, there, no car comes off the assembly line, you know, there are only a hundred of a kind come off, and, and everyone is different, and, and how many different kinds of Coke and Pepsi, and, you know, 1965, you'd get a Coke as long as you bought it, you know, you might be able to get it in a six and a half ounce bottle or something else, but that was it, and, and so everything is differentiated, and, and so, yeah, and opinion is one of those things. Let's move to bringing our, our, uh, our, our guests up here. It is my pleasure to first introduce to you Representative Lorraine Osley. Lorraine represented District 9 in the Florida House of Representatives for eight years and in 2010 ran, for Democratic nominee, ran as the Democratic nominee for CFO. She serves as chair of Whole Child Leon, an initiative focused on young children and their families. Lorraine is involved at a leadership level nationally and no labels, a movement transcending partisan labels to address America's challenges. Lorraine? And again, it is also my pleasure to introduce to you Sally Bradshaw. Sally most recently serves as a senior advisor to the Republican Party of Florida and a member of Governor Rick Scott's transition advisory panel. She served as Je Governor Jeb Bush's chief of staff as senior advisor to Governor Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Sally worked at the White House where she was associate director of political affairs for President George H.W. Bush. Sally. Well, this is a conversation among three very special people, and uh, we'll get them started, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, but let me start with all of this. Bill has posited this notion uh, that modern politics is really about maximizing the base, that that's really where you need to spend your time, that the, the great American middle is gone. Do you think he's right? And Lorraine, I'll start with you. Well, Steve asked me this last night, um, you know, about m my recent campaign. What did your advisors, did your advisors advise you to, to, to play to your base? And my answer was no. I mean, obviously, we hadn't read the book. Um, I, mean, <laughs> I, wish I'd, I wish I'd had this about six months ago. <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, you know, I've always been, and I guess, you know, it, today the news of the demise of the Democratic Leadership Council, um, which is an organization that I've been very involved in, um, the centrist movement, um, you know, I guess uh, you could have um, predicted that. And it's... Uh, it's depressing to me. It's something. I mean, it, it, I think you you said it at the beginning, Steve. Um, this is it's it's profound, but it's also disturbing um, because I've always, you know, as a as an elected official, as a public servant, always believed that it is um, it's my responsibility to um, you know to to speak to my base, but to represent everyone in my community and and to work across the aisle and 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 that civility is important and 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 I think kind of what we're saying here is that. Um, to get elected and stay elected in these times, um, civility doesn't matter. And, and I think that's, um, 
you know, we're all here because we believe that civility matters. And I think that, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm perplexed, but I, it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm interested in this conversation. All right. Is he right? Is Bill right? Yep. <laughs> um, I, I think yes and maybe. Um, yeah, I really liked Bill's book, and I would really commend it to you if you haven't read it. It is impressive, and as he said, Republicans, especially Republican operatives, broke the code on this probably 15 years ago when we began to really target people by zip code, where you live, um, what magazines that you read. One of my favorite pieces of mail that I've ever been involved with, and it was a positive piece, not a negative piece, actually, was a piece that we did for Jeb Bush's reelection campaign to Golf Digest subscribers in 2002. Arnold Palmer had come out, which would have been a meaningless endorsement in a substantive context. But to people who play golf and read Golf Digest, that was a big endorsement. And so we got that subscription list, and we targeted those voters and sent a beautiful piece of mail that never really made the media. It would not happen in this day and age. It would be in the St. Pete Times blog, and I'm sure we'd be roundly criticized for the lack of substance. But it was a very effective piece because we were targeting our base. In Florida, and I can't speak to other states, but there are actually more registered Democrats than Republicans. So to win in Florida, if you're a Republican, you have to turn out more of your supporters than the other side. And so targeting people who read Golf Digest you know, made sense to us. And so that's part of what you do as a op an operative. But also in Florida, I would say that the largest growing segment of the voting population are people who register no party affiliation and people who register as independents. In fact, we have roughly four and a half million registered Democrats in the state, four million registered Republicans, 2.3 million no party affiliation and independent voters. And so to win in Florida statewide, you have to make an effort to get to the middle. It's important, and I'd be interested in Bill's thoughts on that, because again, that's not broken down by county. It's really a statewide perspective. But I, I don't think you can get away from the need to speak to the middle in a state like Florida. Bill, you got a thought? When the pollsters call out the people who say that they're independent, they ask them, what are, oh, I'm an independent. People say, I'm an independent. And they say, well, who do you normally vote for? Oh, I, well, I normally vote for a Republican, or I normally vote for... And we, as they keep asking the questions, they find those that say that they're, or that they're registered independent are vote about as allegiantly as those who say that they're Republican or Democratic. So uh, when you get down to the people who truly switch back and forth, then it's around 6 to 8 10%, according to the... And, so, and at that point, then it's... It's still, when election is 50-50, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big number, but it's not, it's not the kind of, and, and this gets away for also from primary elections then, where, um, you know, that six to 10. The thing is, people who haven't decided, they're the ones that don't vote, right? Undecided people are the least likely, the, the people who are most likely to vote are those that have strong opinions, so, um, um, people who say, well, I don't know what I am, you can almost think, oh, you know. And I guess, you know, back to, to that point, um, in, in, a, in a statewide election, you know, like mine, you, you hope that the party gets the base out in your, your 
job as a candidate is to speak to that six to eight percent because that's going to make the difference. I mean, that, and that's what we're battling for is that six to eight percent. Somebody's going to get the Democrats out. They're going to get their base out. You hope that your, your operatives are, are better than the others, but you do have to speak to that six to eight percent. And that's, I guess, where, where we are coming from. Well, and I think also political climate at the time matters. I mean, really, you could be anyone uh, other than a Democrat and have won in this last election cycle. I'd love to think that all the Republican operatives in Florida were wildly successful in the last cycle, but the fact is good candidates like Rand, who are good public servants, just are going to have a tougher time in that type, of that type of climate. And the same would be the case, you know, two years earlier. I mean, there is a lot of change in short periods of time. Uh, voters are fickle. And you see that. Because, you know, I'm so intrigued by this no party affiliation and the numbers are staggering to me. Have you parsed through to determine what the younger voters are doing along the lines of what they're doing in, in your emerging religions bill? I mean, have we looked at older no party affiliation versus younger? It, are, can we, are there any, is there any wisdom out here on this? Sally, do you know? Well, I was asking Bill, but he looked Well, I mean, the interesting thing to me in looking at independence and, and if you are an operative and you run campaigns, you really look a lot at the I-4 quarter, too. You look at regions of the state and counties in the state, as Bill has discussed. But typically, these people are not as motivated to vote, and younger voters are not as motivated to vote as seniors. So within those independents, you target people who are the most likely to vote, and younger voters don't seem to be as interested, with the exception of when you have a candidate like Barack Obama, who is really the first modern day candidate able to motivate young voters to the extent that he did and get them to the poll. But we didn't see that continue on into this last election cycle. No. I, one thing that, that Sally and I talked a, a little bit today about this, and it, it's something that, that uh, I also find disturbing, but I'd like to talk about it, and it is assumptions that we make about each other because of any number of labels that we label each other. Um, you're a Republican, so you don't care about the environment. You know, you're a Democrat, so you don't care about small business or whatever those labels are that are almost always wrong and troublesome, but we do it anyway, don't we? I mean, is, isn't, isn't a huge problem that we have is our predisposition to label, to make assumptions. Well, and, and Steve, we talked about this. You were on the Preston Scott show this morning, and I, I listened to it, and I turned it off. Um, I mean, and, and I had to take my son to school. So I got back in the car, and you were gone, but Preston was continuing to talk about you. And, and I'm, I go to the Preston Scott show regularly, but to prove your point, he made a comment that was really quite offensive to me, saying that he just doesn't understand how anyone who believes in God and goes to church can be a Democrat. <laughs> and, and so absolutely, I mean, there, and that, of course, he's driving his business. I mean, that's what he does is, is but, but I immediately emailed Eric, um, his, the, the, the other guy that's on the show with him. And I said, did he just say what I thought he said? And does he say this often? And he said, Yes, he said it. He doesn't say it often, but he believes it. Um, and you should email him. And I said, well, I'm not sure I want to engage him on that today. But, um, but, it, no, it is, but I think that, that affirms your point, is that we, it is, um, and it is why gatherings like this are so important to break down those barriers. Um, a lot of, you talk a lot about um, the, the 
the old days of Congress, and it's the same in Tallahassee. I, I use this example all the time. When, um, when the legislature would come here, bring their family, they kids would play on little league teams together, they would dine together. Um, they, they didn't hate each other, they, you know, they didn't demonize the other side, and I think a lot more got done. Uh, we see that, that, that same thing happening here in, in Tallahassee, that is happening in Washington, that it's e easy to put those labels up and just assume the worst of, of the other side rather than try to, to, um, to, to start from the point of common ground. Lorraine and I actually attend the same church, a mainline Presbyterian denomination here, and uh, so I can vouch for her attendance probably more regularly than not. Thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, but I have a great story to that point that actually happened to me a long time ago, and it was really eye-opening. I was, I think, in the 11th grade, and I went to Washington on a program called the Close-Up Program, which some of you may be familiar with or have attended. It's sort of a week-long immersion in in the federal government and they take high school students up there. A lot of kids in Leon County participate in this and we went with a group from my high school in Mississippi. And I grew up in a very small town in the Mississippi Delta, moved to Florida about 20 years ago. And when you go on the close-up program, you room with four people, girls or boys, and uh, you room with at least one person you know, but you're assigned to two other people that you don't know. And so my sister, who's a couple years younger than me, happened to go on this trip and she and I were assigned to two girls from Boston, Massachusetts. And they happened to be African-American. And this was, you know, sort of a new experience for us. We were in a very small town in Mississippi. And, and they were very nice. We really enjoyed them. But the first day we were there, I was in the hotel room at the Holiday Inn, and I was stepping out of the shower, and the door was open to the room. And I overheard one of the girls on the phone with her mother. And I could only hear her side of the conversation. And she said, yes, everything's great, we're here, we love Washington, uh, we're rooming with two girls from Mississippi. And there's silence for a few minutes, and she said, yes, they're white, and then there was a little more silence, and then she said, but they're really nice, Mom. <laughs> that was really eye-opening to me, because I think you do make assumptions about people, we all do, every day, whether it's politically or at work, or about moms we see in the preschool pickup line, or whatever the situation. And it is incumbent upon us, as Bill said, to be intentional about trying not to do that, about assuming that we all come at problems you know, from the same direction. We may just eventually end up in a different place on how we resolve an issue. But you know, we care deeply about the same issues. And, and when we assume the worst or assign something to someone that's not true, we can't get beyond that barrier. Ladies and gentlemen, thoughts, questions? Lauren, I think you uh, touched briefly on broadcast radio, and this is a subject that uh, I would like to get some responses on. Uh, I think it's not too over the, the top to say that many areas of broadcast radio have become quite vind bitter, vindictive, and highly political, and highly uh, controversial. In the past, and I think it still exists, although it's virtually uh, unable to be seen, is the uh, Federal Communications Corporation, which used to have a role of monitoring broadcast, radio and television, <clears throat> and with a set of ethical uh, guidelines, was able to offer some sort of uh, forward path that seemed to be down the middle. 
it took that much, dear. <laughs> it also took years, as we all know. Uh, my question is this, a response from each of you, if I may. Uh, what do you think of the tenor of much of talk radio, how political, how vindictive, how truly uh, unacceptable much of it is, and what needs to be done, because after all, we're all talking about civility here, and I believe that's one of the fonts of incivility in our, certain, in our current situation. Yeah, I'm not a, um, I always, when I think of talk radio, I think of the Holly Golightly saying it pays to be top banana in the shock department, and, and it, it pays in talk radio to be more extreme, or in any media, than, uh, than the group you're trying to appeal to. So, you know, Rachel Maddow can't be, you know, a laggard on, on uh, uh, issues either. She has to be out front and a little more extreme than, than the group. And, and, but this whole, I don't think media made us this way. I think media uh, did, uh, plays to a market that exists. And all this was happening long before Rush Limbaugh was on the radio. And, and um, uh, he found a market. And, and uh, now MSNBC has a market. And, and there you go. But, uh, but we're creating this, not them. And I, I, I don't know if anyone here has followed or read um, John Avalon, who wrote a book called The Wingnuts. Um, he's a CNN commentator, and he's one of the founders of No Labels. Uh, but he talks about the, the media um, and the, you know, the hyper-partisanship um, and the fact that, that you know, politicians, in, instead of uh, the, the media you know, responding to politicians, politicians are now responding to the media. Um, and, you know, but I think it, it's a further affirmation of what you talk about in this book. Is it's this, we, all of us um, tend to listen to things that like-minded, you know, the radio station that say the things that we want to hear, and it's apparently selling, um, selling to the to the masses, and it, and it it seems to be working. So, um, you know, it's not helping us in our uh, quest for civility, um, but until. Uh, you know, until we turn it off and stop listening to it, I don't know what the answer is. I don't have time to listen to it. <laughs> so I'm probably not a good example of, of somebody who's an, a talk radio audience member. I will say that I think, and I'm going to make an assumption that I just advised everybody not to do, that probably you're talking about the Rush Limbaugh's and the Bill O'Reilly's and the Fox News. And, and I would say to some extent, that is a response to a perception um, that people who watch those programs, a response to the perception they had that the mainstream media was too much the other way. So I don't, um, it's, it's, we're seeing this and it's out there and it's, it's, it's available and seems very visible to us because we're now in a media-driven society where you can get on the Huffington Post or the Fox News site or any type of blog at any time and get information you want from any source. And I think, you know, you police that by not listening to something, you know, that you find offensive. I mean, I, I don't know of another way to do that, but I, I think the more we get into a society that is media driven and media and options are available, that's going to be very difficult to change. And so um, the market drives those type of things. As Bill said, it's not why we are the way we are, though. And, and one of the other questions I had for him, if I can just throw something out, because I'm, I'm really curious. You started your book looking at this in the 60s, so sometime after the World War II generation, when generally Americans for several years in there felt very together. We were all on the same side. We came out of the war successfully. We fought a huge battle. 
How do you think the numbers would look in the 1700s or the 1800s or pre-World War II on these same issues? Well, it uh, varies according to the time. So in the 1890s or in the 1850s or 1860, right? I mean, it was, what, did Lincoln get three votes south of the Mason? I mean, literally, none. And um, 1890s, the same way. So periods of extreme stress, um, this reappears. And um, uh, what happens is that um, there are fewer areas where people are friends. People are, uh, there are fewer cross-cutting issues. So things work better, like with the tribes, when, when uh, you, we could avoid the Civil War for years because uh, people in the North and people in the South had, uh, they were friends about trade or about transportation or about other issues. Uh, it's only when all the issues become aligned uh, that we get into trouble. So uh, now we're in a situation where Republicans are always enemies with all Democrats, and Democrats are always enemies with all, all Republicans, and there's no issue that arises that cuts across those strict party boundaries. So in a way, the labels are correct. When, when I had a Republican county commissioner in Oregon tell me, he said, people don't have to ask me about abortion now, they just ask me about property rights. Uh, they just, and so once you know what someone believes about property rights, and then they know what they believe about abortion. And, uh, and so when, when that sort of thing is happening, then the labels begin to have more meaning and there's less opportunity for people to, to uh, engage uh, others in any sort of mixed up way. It's always and, the same. And Bill, isn't there evidence that suggests that people are actually starting to adjust their opinion on issues, hi Bill, um, adjust their opinion on specific issues based on their tribal affiliation, their party affiliation, rather than necessarily what they thought to begin with. Yeah, there, I mean there's, yes, and so in order to be a good member of the tribe, of your group, then pe there's some evidence that people are changing their opinions, or they're in fact changing their churches, uh, Robert Putnam believes, in order to, uh, so that the, their church affiliation aligns with their political beliefs. Okay. Good evening. Uh, I was, you know, we heard a lot about society tonight. We heard about tribes now. But I really wonder, looking at a politician and a political advisor and somebody who stu studies politicians and political advisors, are we really dealing with a phenomenon that's top-down as opposed to bottom-up? And, and by that I mean, you know, we look at politicians and their advisors and the spinmeisters and the radio announcers and the TV and all these other people, community leaders. Is what's going on a phenomenon that the leaders are driving everybody to the extremes and benefiting from that by getting elected, for instance? Or do you really think it's coming from society and the people down below pushing it up? Well, it's probably both, right? I mean, uh, but but I'm a, I'm a old weekly I'm a weekly newspaper editor, so I, I sort of think it things come from the bottom up, and and uh, and so I think a lot of this is is driven from the bottom up, and a lot of it is driven by the primary process, because you know that there was a guy at um, I forget the name of the college. He he did interviews with people who were prospective candidates. He went to local chambers and school boards and unions and said who would be a great member of Congress 
and, and he got a list of names and then he interviewed those people and they all said, you know, I could put up with the, uh, the money raising and I know I'd be on the road all the time, but what I can't put up with is having to go through a primary where I have to misrepresent who I really am, where I have to be more extreme than uh, I really am in order to be elected. So th there's a process uh, in the primary election where sort of more moderate candidates are weeded out because they don't want to go through the process. And I'll tell you a personal story. I mean, I, I, in my race, I was the Democratic nominee, didn't have a primary. Um, and I got in the race late, and I would spend a, lot, spend a lot of time in Broward, Palm Beach, and Dade counties, and would go to the Democratic Executive Committee, and I would watch my colleagues, you know, in the other race, in the Attorney General's race, two very good friends running against each other. Um, but they were, they were, you know, they were, the, the group was hurling insults at them, trying to move them farther to the left to get, and, you know, and I was the queen. I walked in, and they, you know, because I didn't have a primary, I didn't have to go through that. And it was, um, it was, you know, I had a very different experience than they did. Didn't make a dial di hill of beans difference in the general. <laughs> Let me just suggest something a little more positive, though. I, I see my work world, and maybe this is not a good thing, it's a little different from the lens through which I view my personal world. Um, and obviously, I'm so impacted by this because of what I've done for a living, but, but at, at the person-to-person -person level in Leon County or Gadsden County where I live, these issues are just not driving my friendships or relationships with people. I, Lee Marshall, who's the, I guess, unofficial photographer for the Village Square on the front row, official. Called, <laughs> official, called me several years ago and said, you need to meet my friend Liz Joyner. And I said, oh, great. You know, what's up with Liz? And she said, she's nothing like you. And, <laughs> And she said, which is exactly why you need to meet. And, and Liz and I actually share a lot of experiences in the work world. But we went and had a cup of coffee and a bagel, and it was delightful. And it's the reason it why I said, let me come tonight. I'd love to do this. And I've wanted to get to a Village Square event. And I think if you look at the relationships you have with people in your church, um, parents you met because your children were in a preschool years ago that you've remained friends with, um, we have the ability to do this differently and to broaden our universe and expand the way we look at these issues and not make assumptions about people. And so if, if you look at it from that perspective, it's not quite so bad. There is a way to change the lens through which we view these issues. Liz, I think we've about wrapped it up. And if it would be OK with you all, um, this gentleman in the back asked about this. Yeah, asked about the stakes. And this, for me, these stakes are very high of what Bill has brought to us and because I'm me it's we will close with a Lincoln quote and you all may remember this but it really does have to do with us as a people I believe he said I am loath to close we are not enemies but friends we must not be enemies though passion may have strained it must not break our bonds of affection the mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again as touched as they surely will be by the better angels of our nature. Thank you all very much for coming tonight. And, and thank you so much to Bill Bishop, our panelists, Lorraine Osley, Ann Henderson, Rod Petrie, and Steve Seibert. Thank you.
though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. Indeed. <laughs> that just goes to show you that this, the problems that we're addressing here, it, it ain't anything new. <laughs> they didn't start circa 2015. So, Corey Nathan back here with you. What strikes me as I listen to this discussion is that so many folks are seeing similar symptoms to a cultural illness. And also, as Bill spelled it out in his talk, these trends have been continuing and evolving and in some ways are increasing over many years, not just over the last eight years or so. But, you know, we had a number of participants in this conversation who come from different political affiliations, different religious communities. And I don't suspect that there's any uniformity among Bill and Steve Seibert and Moran Owsley and Sally Bradshaw or Liz Joyner for that matter. But where there is a shared commitment is to resist that proclivity to sort ourselves into bubbles where everyone just agrees with us on everything. To engage in healthier civic conversations and even nurture relationships with neighbors across our differences. Go break bread or, <laughs> or break a bagel, <laughs> like, like they mentioned, with someone that's not like you. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. With that, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members and supporting this programming. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's villagesquare.us slash donate. While you're there, sign up for Village Square's newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us, scroll down to the bottom, and um, you'll see that sign-up box. Funding for this podcast was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. We appreciate you listening to The Big Sort, why the clustering of like-minded America is tearing us apart. <laughs> so until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't think or look like you. It really does change everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. <laughs>